Catherine Stewart is the author of Power Warshippers, The Rise of Religious Nationalism. She is an author, an investigative reporter, and I'm very pleased to be joined by her today to have what I hope is a very important discussion for all of you about a great danger that we all face and isn't talked about enough in my view. And Catherine, I just want to start out here. I had a um, experience in the last couple of, of weeks, two actually, that I want to share with you before we get into a discussion about the danger. And, and the first one uh, was sitting down with a young journalist, and by young, I'm going to say early 30s, um, and was watching CNN on a television screen and was asking a political question premised on, well, if this is on CNN, how could possibly this other competing message ever get through? And what was on CNN, of course, was the Israeli-Gaza war. And what I said to the journalist was, you want understand that there's like 148,000 people in the country watching this right now. And I pointed to someone who was like walking by on the street. And I said, you appreciate, right? That that, that person, like they, in their visual acuity, they're seeing something completely different than what you're seeing, which along with me are two of the 148,000 people in our country at 330 million watching what we're watching on CNN. So then I'm having another conversation and it's with a it's with a woman who is erudite, uh, well-read, smart, but falls into this category of people that when they're exposed to something they don't know, their response isn't, I don't know that, tell me more. It's that since I don't know about it, it can't possibly be. And so this conversation goes like this. Well, have you heard about the Claremont Institute? No. Well, do you know about the plan that's developed at the Claremont Institute that would disassemble really at a at a structural level, the American government? No. Well, it's been written about where? Because I read everything. And I'm like, well, but not everything, obviously, right? If you haven't read the things that have been written, like by Catherine Stewart about the about the Claremont Institute. And so then the conversation goes on and it ends and I'm kind of thinking about it like a little bit later. And over my career, my years in politics, my years on the set as an analyst at a network, all all of these all these accumulated experience, right? What I what I've come to understand is the power of the news executive uh, at some level is the power of omission, right? What what doesn't get seen? What doesn't get heard? What 
is chosen, right? What is the middle denominator, right? Or the least common denominator, right? Depending on how you look at it. So if you were sitting objectively in a newsroom, right? If I, if I was the new guy at CNN, right? I was the British guy, right? That they brought in from the BBC, um, who I'm sure will help connect them more deeply to to red america and flyover country but i digress but 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 if i was that guy and we're having the first meeting and you're kind of like what's going on in the world i would start at some level with there's an incredibly well-funded fascist organization that has established intellectual coherence under an umbrella offered to it that gives us some legitimacy at a, at a place called the Claremont Institute. And there, there is an operating plan. The second that Trump comes in, that's now surfaced in the last couple of weeks since you wrote your story about the Claremont Institute. Project 2025. We're gonna we're gonna take out fifty thousand civil servants. We're going to create concentration camps to round up millions of people for deportation. We're going to arrest political opponents, and and importantly, at at moment one, we're going to invoke the Insurrection Act of 1791 or two and deploy the American military onto the streets if the chain of command would follow an illegal and unconstitutional order from the President of the United States, which is really the great unknown variable out there. So with that, my question to you is this. Am I nuts? <laughs> or is the threat what I believe it to be based on your writings? And should we take Donald Trump seriously when he says the things that he says, including directly using the language of Adolf Hitler, which is the use of the word vermin, which was deliberate, purposeful, premeditated, and absolutely the word from page one of the Joseph Goebbels playbook, if you know your history. Well, you're right. This uh, language is not Nazi-like. It is actually Nazi language, and it is very dangerous. This kind of dehumanization of one's political enemies uh, always precedes uh, a kind of authoritarian actions and fascist, fascist actions are always preceded by this kind of language, the identi identification of an internal enemy um, uh, that represents an apocalyptic threat to the nation. Um, and your question is, are, are, should we take this seriously? And I think when we look at the Claremont Institute, we absolutely have to take it seriously. And I'd like to outline, if I may, three sort of factors that explain the Claremont Institute that show why we need to take it seriously. The first thing is that this is, you know, you hear Claremont Institute, you 
you picture a bunch of hippies on the beach. They're not that, okay? This, they're not a fringe group. Um, they're very powerful and they now have a very deep network that is connected with leading Republican politicians, including Trump and his shadow cabinet, which uh, we see outlined in documents like Project 2025. It's a massive document that includes a lot of contributors from the Claremont Institute uh, and it's a plan for how they want to reshape our government uh, in really fundamental ways. So again, this is not a fringy group. It's there's always been, you know, nuts and bolts and, you know, in American society, some, you know, extremes here and there. But this is a really a group that has a potential to take power in Washington, D.C. So that's the first point. In terms of their basic ideas, the most important one you know, when we're talking about uh, language of the Nazis, the, the most important point that I think they um, it, they seem to represent is what the Nazi political theorist Carl Schmitt would call the state of emergency. So in their view, America is so broken, it's certain to collapse, we're going to hell in a handbasket, and any intervention is justified and we need to set aside any laws and institutions that get in the way of their response. More specifically, I think they, um, you know, you always hear all this talk about a woke elite and woke communists. This is something Vivek Ramaswamy has said and also uh, Trump has said it a number of times. They think this woke elite has captured what they call the administrative state. That's, you know, uh, the air traffic controllers, food safety commissioners, the military, you know, all of it, uh, the intelligence services, FBI. And they they think that this so-called administrative state is bent on absolutely destroying America and uh, destroying its everything, you know, taking away everything good that we all value. And it needs to be rooted out at any and all cost. So. I think that's frankly the most important aspect of their political creed. Um, and that sort of authoritarianism is always tied to the sense of crisis and the idea that intellectuals are to blame. So a, a second thing that we need to draw out is this idea that the new order, the solution to this problem involves two distinct group of people. There's the intellectual cadre, a sort of special people, the intellectuals, the thinkers on their side who are gonna be the new elite and are gonna um, create a, a sort of right thinking conservative vanguard. And on the other hand, you have the people, uh, the virtuous people who are cast as real Americans as opposed to um, the internal enemy that uh, Trump identifies Steve Bannon and some of the Claremonters refer to them as the hobbits in the Shire. Uh, they don't often know really what's going on and that's okay. They just, that might actually be preferable, but they need to be disinformed enough to be led by that right thinking and supposedly virtuous elite and do what they want. And, um, you know, that's, these are three things to uh, to keep in mind. It's um. You know, when Trump talks about how we're facing this existential crisis, um, the consequences of loss in the political arena are too dire to ignore, and we need to uh, do these radical actions, 
it's he's not the only one saying this. You've got this whole think tank that is echoing and in many ways pushing forth these ideas. Um, you know, this is a movement that long preceded Donald Trump, and frankly, it will long outlast him. Well, you are describing on the second part of this at a at an organizational level is really a model of a cadre, intellectual, dogmatic, in the vanguard and spearheading a revolutionary movement that's aimed at destroying and tearing down uh, in the name of what the Germans would have called the Volk, the people. And it's important to recognize something at the outset of this conversation. And what is antithetical to Americanism about this movement. So there have been searing speeches, denunciations of the United States and its hypocrisies that we can look back and remember through the lens of history, not just as great orations, but tremendous moral moments in the development of the Republic that is to be, that is coming, that is emerging. So Frederick Douglass uh, speaks and he says, what is the 4th of July to a slave? And he condemns the United States of America in a time where slavery exists and lives his life in opposition, right, to this amoral condition. We, we look back on this now through the prism of a hundred some years after that of Martin Luther King coming to the Lincoln Memorial, marching under the American flag, not to do as the Claremont Institute wishes to do, which is to tear down. Martin Luther King comes, in his words, to collect a promissory note. He simply wants to be included in the idea and ideal that says all men are created equal. And so every group of Americans that has sought to step out of the darkness and into the sun of liberty, importantly, Frederick Douglass is the speaker at one of the first gatherings of women demanding the franchise. And it's Frederick Douglass who propels the motion forward that day that, yes, women in that moment should take the step and declare in a resolution that we should have the right, that we should have the right to vote. But always the movement is to be included within and under that these universal rights are proclaimed as including all people. Really, the opposition movements in America have been humanist movements, moral movements, human rights movements, but that's not what this movement is. This is a destructive movement that seeks to tear down something that's 250 years old. That's right. You know, Claremont 
provides a platform for white nationalists. Interesting that you mentioned Douglas and Martin Luther King is uh, wanting to uh, be included in the uh, you know in in the America and and protected by the principles of equality and pluralism that represent the best of the American promise. But uh, the folks that uh, comprise the new right are all in on hierarchies. They um, they platform white nationalists. Um, and insurrectionists, people who have uh, sought, they uh, we can't forget that Claremont Institute was the intellectual home of John Eastman, otherwise known as co-conspirator two in the Trump indictment. Um, they platform supporters of political violence and fundamental illiberalism. And they, uh, they you know, this is a, a think tank that publishes a couple of journals and they publish or affirmatively review or even offer, have offered fellowships to racist replacement theorists and other conspiracists along with those who just want to uh, burn democracy down. They wanna burn it down and seize control of what remains. Now that's really nothing remotely conservative about this. Uh, it's, this is radical. They're not conservative at all. They, you know, claim an interest in political philosophy and study the past. But in truth, they appear to have little interest in learning from the past or an honest study of the past. They're really driven instead by hatred of groups or aspects of life in the present that make them feel uncomfortable. And so they map them onto a fictional narrative involving an imaginary past. This isn't intellectual history. This is a, a cartoon history uh, rooted in some kind of reactionary pathology. It's rooted in a mythology of fantasy and a fantasy of mythology. Let's unpack some of this a little bit more. And what I would say is I've always loved history. And it was the thing that excited me in school. It ignited for me a love of reading um, and a passion for the news and journalism. And all of it was always steeped in what happens next? What's going to happen next? And if you fall in love with history, and you you put it on a a speed loop you have in the 16th century the 17th century the early 18th century you have this meeting on the north american and south american continent of civilizations one uh, in many ways, morally and spiritually superior uh, in harmony for 600 generations with the land, the water, the mountains, uh, and the other technologically superior, the Europeans. And this cataclysm comes. But along this arc, the values of humanism, the enlightenment, the idea that leads to the birth of the United States 
all of the developments, the industrial age through the 19th century, and it starts to pick up in the 1870s, right? After the American Civil War, you get a taste of 20th century warfare. And then in the 1870s, the Franco-Prussian War, which is the precursor to the First World War. And, and you come barreling through into the third decade of the 20th century. And Adolf Hitler comes on the edge of achieving political power in 1933 uh, as chancellor. He comes the year before to Dusseldorf to deliver a political speech to the industrialists who are the, the, the equivalent of today's Chamber of Commerce. And none of these people like Hitler. Every one of these people had the exact same attitude towards Hitler that every one of their successors in American business had towards Trump in 2015, 2016. And so you look at German society and you have the military, you have a aristocracy, you have a powerful Catholic clergy and Protestant clergy, and you have a middle class, and you have an industrial base. And the argument that Hitler makes to them at the core is an argument that has not been really heard in a coherent fashion until the Claremont Institute started making this argument. And I'm going to be provocative here. And, and I want you to push back on me if you think I'm exaggerating, if there's any errancy as I interpret the Claremont message as, as Hitlerian. This is what Adolf Hitler says in this speech. He, he says that democracy enslaves you. It's a lie. And he predicts that one day in the United States, because of democracy, black people are going to have the right to vote and their vote will count equally to a white vote. And since blacks are inferior to whites in the Nazi racial hierarchy, this isn't democracy, this is slavery. And so Adolf Hitler goes on in this speech to talk about the fact that if everyone in a society who is unequal is treated equally, what that does is punish the superior race, the superior caste, diminishes them by taking away their God-given divine and providential right through the prism of their superiority to rule over, as the Germans called them, the Untermenschen, the underclasses. And all of this is kind of steeped in the theories and the writings of a French nobleman named Arthur de Gobineau, who wrote a book in the 1850s. 
And the book was The Inequality of the Races. And he ranked everybody, all of the races in the world. And de Gobineau didn't really have any particular brook against the Jews, who he described as a clever race. But, but he did establish for the first time what the superior race was. And that was the Aryan race. Right? So, so he creates this term. We go about 80 years. This is very standard. Teddy Roosevelt. Everybody in this moment of history believes in eugenics, accepts this as science. This is, if not gospel, prevailing kind of sociological scientific wisdom. And along comes the Nazis. And the Nazis using some of their racial laws on the basis of Southern miscegenation laws in the United States, strip citizenship from underclasses, lesser people, dehumanized as vermin and rats like the Jews, like the Roma, like the gypsies, and off they go to concentration camps. Detained, but not yet gassed and incinerated, that comes later. But the doctrine of this, the dogma of this, was that democracy is unfair, that democracy gives equality to people who are less than and therefore is a burden on the people who are more than. And this is the philosophy of the Claremont Institute as they have articulated it in the words of the Claremont Institute. What say you? Well, I would say they're not the only sector of the American right that has echoed this idea that uh, democracy is a heresy. In fact, the term, the heresy of democracy was used by uh, pro-slavery theologians in the American South, some of the leaders of the Southern Presbyterian Church, who were very powerful at that time and very well funded, and were absolutely on the side of uh, the slaveholder, um, and accused uh, abolitionist theologians and other abolitionists as being uh, communists, heretics, socialists, uh, and the like, and said that slaveholders were on the side of order and regulated freedom. That's what they called it, order and regulated freedom. Those ideas were echoed by some mid-century uh, theologians. I'm thinking of people like uh, Rusus John Rushduni, who is an actually uh, extremely influential figure in the development of America's religious right today, who also believed inequalities as ordained by God, white people over black people, although he was a little coy about that but you can see it in his writings where he offers a biblical a justification for the biblical forms of slavery, you know, not the abusive forms, but the truly biblical forms of slavery are just and are always men over women. And these types of ideas, look, the Claremont Institute, I actually think a lot of its leaders are atheistic. If you delve into what they really say, they're not um, leaders of the religious right, but they do come down on the side of these kinds of hierarchies 
uh, Claremont is one of the main purveyors of neo-fascist ideology. And this ideology, it's sad to say, is really driving much of the politics in the Republican Party today. They've really, like the extremists have really, you've pointed this out many times. It's like the conservatism is, is eaten in a way by the sort of right-wing extremism because people capitulate and don't don't push back. And extremists have been very organized and systematic in taking over the party. So when you hear uh, politicians, right-wing politicians today, talk about what they call wokeism, and they describe it not as an annoyance or just sort of like, oh, this is irrational. They describe it as an actual form of tyranny, an actual national emergency. When you people, you know, hear them claim that the institutions of culture have all been thoroughly captured by a leftist revolutionary elite, anyone to the left of them must be the leader of a Maoist insurgency. These are all ideas manufactured by new writers and used to justify an essentially authoritarian response. And, you know, I want to say that there's, uh, you know, you could call it a dog whistle uh, in the, at the Claremont Institute for uh, Racism and Misogyny, but I actually think it's a bullhorn. The Institute is really not doing anything to hide their extremism, their extreme ideas. And frankly, I think it makes their position unfortunately, more attractive to leaders with a reactionary mindset. I think that there's that there's no question that that's true. You said something that I want to agree with that I think is important to note in any discussion about this, just as a historic and academic matter, is that when Hitler comes to power and becomes chancellor, there are two Nazis in the government at the beginning. Hitler is chancellor, and there's there's some German version of the secretary of HUD, right, or transportation secretary, right? Those are the two Nazis. Within six months, he's absolute dictator of Germany. I find it interesting, and I do think this is a dog whistle, to every white nationalist and extremist, the American metric for legislative achievement, which existed for about 90 years, going back to FDR's 100 days, the Claremont Institute plan is a six-month plan to take down the American government almost completely and to reorder it as being fundamentally loyal to the leader, no questions asked, which is not how the American government is, is organized. And so I, I don't think any of that is accidental. But what always happens, any fascist movement, whether it exists in Argentina, Chile, Spain, wherever, always for a time, whether it's with Franz von Papen, in Germany, there will always be an alliance between the fascists and the conservatives until the fascists swallow completely the conservatives, either executing them, killing them, imprisoning them, or completely co-opting them into the movements. But those are the only those are the only choices that are at hand. 
you started talking about the next element of this, which is the religious nationalism. There is an apocryphal quote they're attributed to Upton Sinclair or Sinclair Lewis uh, that neither said likely, but it's that when fascism comes to America, it will be carrying the flag, excuse me, it'll be carrying a cross and wrapped in the flag. So we have a fascist movement funded by billions of dollars, organized with millions of people under a cult of personality led by Donald Trump that has been violent, has demonstrated hostility to elections, has made a number of commitments and promises, including withdrawing the United States from 80 years of global leadership, withdrawing the United States from the NATO security treaties, the defense treaties that have kept the peace of the world, imprisoning political opponents, setting up concentration camps for mass deportations, um, all of these things promised. Uh, we have a we have a robust propaganda capability um, that is worth many billions of dollars that has completely overwhelmed, with a few exceptions, uh, the Democratic Party, the Biden White House, the uh, the the entirety of the civil organizations that exist in the United States to try to explain, explicate, teach, advance American values, the spirit of the American Revolution to steward the country to make it more perfect uh, on the journey to the mountaintop that, that King talks about, completely overwhelmed it. We have that. And then we have... Uh, an element of religious nationalism emboldened in the Trump era. Uh, Pastor Paula, uh, full-on extremist grifters of the highest conceivable level who want power, who want control. We have a Speaker of the House with no bank account discernible whatsoever, grown adult, second in line to the presidency of the United States, and no exaggeration here, and he has every right to believe this, but he believes, right, that people and dinosaurs were walking around together 6,000 years ago is an absolute conviction, does not believe in the separation of church and state. You ask him, what are your political positions? He points at a Bible, and he says it's in there. When those people combine with the people at the Claremont Institute, now you have two elements. You have two elements that hate democracy, hate liberty, hate freedom, hate pluralism, don't believe in women's rights, don't believe in human rights, don't believe in gay rights, who want power. And everywhere in the world, where these two groups have ever come together, 
there has been chaos, violence, and death. How do you think about the danger here through an American prism? I think the danger is real. And I think a factor that intensifies all of this is the conspiracism and disinformation that has really separated a sector of the population from the facts. You know, the way I do a lot of my research as an investigative reporter is I go to right-wing conferences and strategy meetings and gatherings. Um, and I've gone to a few gatherings called Reawaken America. It's a traveling pro-Trump conspiracist roadshow that typically takes place in mega churches around the country. This is the Mike Flynn. Right, Mike Flynn, Clay Clark, usually one of the Trump sons shows up to speak. Uh, There's a lot of art of, you know, Trump, Trump's face with eagles and crosses and Jesus is looking over him, things like that. Um, And it sort of combines a radical anti-democracy with every imaginable conspiracy, the Great Replacement, um, One World Government, uh, JFK, you you name it, that conspiracy is there. And the conspiracy that appears to unite everyone is the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. Trump is one of the white hats fighting the black, you know, whatever. They've got, you you lose track of all the conspiracies, but... um, So when you separate a significant percentage of the population from the facts, it really makes them easier to control. And that's how we can explain the fact that I believe it's a most recent poll said something like 60% or more of Republican voters believe the 2020 election was stolen. And a very significant number of Americans believe that political violence can be justified in order to uh, restore the nation. I do think that we are facing, uh, democracy is really facing an existential threat. Now, you know, I I, I think it's natural for people to want to try to make themselves more comfortable and to tell themselves that, you know, there's this pendulum that swung one way and it's gonna magically swing in the other direction. And it's true that our country is very large and dynamic. Um, Trump did not win the 2020 election. He was defeated. Um, And if we look at what happened in the last election cycle, you know, you've got these far right groups like Moms for Liberty, some of whom have ties to the Proud Boys and echo a lot of the sort of uh, Claremont type talking points. 80% of them were defeated in spite of the money behind them, in spite of the organization that they have, 80% were defeated in their local races. So I do think a lot of people are sort of cottoning on to this uh, threat in our midst. So I'm not, um, you know, thinking, you know, yes, we are facing an existential threat, but I I don't feel hopeless, as it were. Um, But I do think that, um, you know, look, for over five decades, um, very, uh, very, very wealthy people have invested in the infrastructure of the religious right and sort of far right um, institutions. Many times they do it not for religious reasons, but for economic reasons. They want to consolidate 
their privilege. They want policies that, you know, are going to allow them to continue to, if they're polluters involved in fossil fuels, they want to be able to continue to do that kind of business. So they'll fund organizations like the Heartland Institute, which get, casts doubt on climate change. Um, uh, they want to, you know, it's often the same funders that are funding groups like um, the Family Research Council or uh, Heritage Foundation, which are these sort of heritage contributed to heavily uh, to Project 2025. They're also funding anti-union activities. And so here's the funny thing. I think that there are all these resentments that appeal to people. People often have a sense that, well, I'm not doing as well as my dad uh, or his dad, and I can't feed my family with my paycheck like my dad and my grand grandfather could, and, and our families are falling apart. And they they don't, and the right wing is is not there to say, oh, look at this, let's deal with this economic inequality let's you know give you like make sure you have jobs that pay a living wage and have good health care and strong public schools that you feel confident sending your kids to in fact they're trying to destroy workers rights they're through organizations like the freedom foundation they're trying to destroy unions and and uh, and and destroy certain kinds of uh, other po other policies that help the the workforce and instead, they give them these shiny baubles, you know, wokeism. They give them a sort of, you know, abortion. It used to be abortion, same-sex marriage. Those issues have started pulling so poorly for the right that they've flipped to this sort of the the T in LGBT, right? They, you know, whatever you think of those issues, it, it becomes like a shiny bauble for the right to distract people from the, their, frankly, I think, um, incredibly consequential economic policy that they're that they're pushing i would i would say i would say two things in in response to that which is that it's very important to understand right the nazis did not run on the holocaust <sighs> they did not run on genocide they ran on family values and the economy right all of that all of that came all of that came later you know there were long periods where Transactionally, the Nazis would ramp up the anti-Semitism, tone down the anti-Semitism, let it off the chain. It was a tool of control. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what happened in Germany in 1930 was Hitler's high watermark. And when he didn't take power, there was chaos in the society. There was violence between left and right. And the answer to the chaos was to put the chaos agents in charge. And, and basically, the proposition that Hitler offered uh, to the middle class, the army, the industrialists, and all of those people who were looking at what happened to their compatriots in Russia 20 years earlier uh, was a choice. And the choice that they made was based on the belief that ultimately the people that Hitler killed first the left and the communists and the dissent would have killed them if they took power. And so when you reduce politics to an existential threat, zero sum, the other side is illegitimate and out to kill you, what you get is the choice that the Germans got in 1932. And that Americans, I think, have long had a certain arrogance about that could never happen here. But instead, 
should be open to the possibility that that it well could happen here um, and might be happening here. Here's what I want to ask you that I feel like is a conversation that no one ever talks about because it's speculative in nature. Um, there's a study I'm reading about conspiracy theories that um, I came across just reading and it was it was basically and I, I just started it, but it's fascinating. One of the findings is essentially that the more likely you to you believe, for example, that Princess Diana was murdered, the more likely you are to believe that Princess Diana is still alive. Absolutely. That makes so, sense. You buy into one conspiracy, you've started to separate yourself from rational deliberation right. from the facts and you're predisposed. What becomes what becomes true is what the leader says is true, no matter how insanely contradictory, which is why it was always a really, really, really big deal when the first thing that Trump did was send his guy out, Spicer, to tell you that image A was in fact not what you were staring at, right? That A was bigger than B, when in fact it was smaller. And so a lie of authority that makes you sub suspend disbelief, requires intellectual submission, is a powerful, powerful tool of the autocrat. But here's, but here's the question that I have, which is when you go to these conferences and you're with these people and you talk to them and you engage with them, you have a drink with them at the bar. Would they put me in a camp if they could? Because I disagree with them politically. You personally? Would they, would <laughs> they round up if they could? Would Mike Johnson? People well, who are not Christians for conversion, if he could. Would there would there be would there be wholesale suspensions? Of, of civil liberties? Or would they act on what our fear is if they if they could? How do you assess that? I think it's important to note that what the leaders or the apparatchiks of the, you know, I would say the Christian nationalist movement, people like Mike Johnson, want is not always the same thing that the rank and file want or the way the sort of leaders of the movement would behave or what they'd go along with may not be on the same order of what uh, the rank and file would go along with. So, you know, when you're talking about the rank and file, you're talking about a very wide range of people, different dispositions and interests. And for a lot of them, their engagement as, say, uh, attendees of a Reawaken America tour, it's really just making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. Um, uh, and, you know, certainly if they've been, you know, there are people there who believe, lots of people who believe that, you know, uh, people who've received vaccines have been microchipped and they, they're told from the stage that 
one world government is controlling them and trying to take away all their money and everything they hold dear. And when people are in that state of fear, it's really all about getting them into a state of fear. And when you get people into that state of irrational fear, you can get them to do crazy things. But the leaders of the movement, you know, look, they've been telling us what they want for a very long time. They have told us they despise our democracy, they want our laws to be based, um, uh, if they're on the religious right side, they want our laws to be based on the Bible. They believe uh, in uh, inequality. What is, what is that? But 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 here's the, which I understand, right? And, you know, over my political career, you know, that wing of the Republican Party, which was not particularly empowered in the campaigns, right? They were, you know, you had Ralph Reed out there, you, you know, all these... But it was none of it was ever on the level, right? They were they were they were hustlers, right? There's always been hustlers in a, in American politics. I'm trying to get at something deeper, which is, I, I'm converting to Judaism, right? I, I I suppose like Mike Johnson, the way he points at the Bible doesn't approve of Catholics either. But if he objects to that to Jews, to Muslims, to Hindus, right? I mean, he's very, very specific and clear. What I'm trying to get at is what does that mean, right? What, what does that world look like, right? What Do you think, right, if they could, right, the people at these conventions, it, never mind unraveling gay marriage, right? Would they lock up gay people? Would they enforce the law, right? How extreme are these people? Or, or is it just performative words, right? Is it or are they almost like actors in a great national reality show who've staked out a sphere or place where it could never happen? Well, look, right. Johnson, you look at Handmaid's Tale. You know, does Mike Johnson look at that? He says, ah, that looks like a nice place to live. I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at. Right. Is like how seriously. When you when you look at the rhetoric then do you apply that to, okay, like, okay, I got it. I hear what you're saying. If, if you could wave a wand and make America into what, what, what would it look like? And I guess, and it's an unfair question because it's wholly speculative, but do you have any concept of what the range of that is? Yes, I do. I mean, you know, what they really want to do is create an America where life you know, the basic facts, uh, uh, operations of life, um, your work, uh, perhaps even where you live, who you love, um, uh, when to have a family and and how large, like the most intimate decisions that uh, couples can make may be out of your control. Um, they want uh, a sort of an in-group that gets to feel superior to those in the out-group uh, America could be a very uncomfortable place for many of those on the out group. Listen, I mean, you can live in Hungary, you can live in Russia, you can live in um, Iran. There are these, we have plenty of examples of more theocratic and, and autocratic forms of governance. It's not like, you know, every, everyone automatically perishes, but life is much more difficult. You can say goodbye to freedom of speech. You can say goodbye to um, many of the rights that you hold dear. Um, Mike Johnson is very clear. He wants to outlaw uh, same-sex intimacy. He has blamed 
not just abortion, but uh, but birth control also on uh, school. Uh, he's blamed school shootings on abortion. Birth control uh, definitely wants to take on certain forms of birth control. Um, he doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. He's, you know, doesn't believe in democracy. He's actually, uh, if you've looked at some of his speeches, he has decried democracy and said America isn't a democracy and shouldn't be. And talks about how that just is, as um, as our pro-slavery theologian John Henley Thornwell would have called it, chaos and communism. So, so my so my question to that is, why can't anybody in the country make an argument that pushes back on this? People do. I mean, many people do. There are a lot of people in this country working on solutions. There are so many people working on um, uh, supporting the infrastructures of democracy, voting rights. Um, Trump is being prosecuted for his crimes. Uh, there, uh, look at the voters in the last election. I mean, we're really not dealing with a country where no one is pushing back I do have a problem with some of the, I think more people would really get active if we would have a better news culture. I think a lot of the folks who populate the political desks at uh, big news operations uh, and take seats on major media panels, they're telling us that America is increasingly partisan and this is terrible. They're divided into tribes. Um, and, you know, they say we, it's just a matter of letting this, you know, free speech to its magic. We can restore civility by opening ourselves to the perspectives of others and just listening to them. And um, the, the challenge is that this is not remotely about free speech. That principle is all about promoting a kind of open discussion in society, in a society that wants to be governed by reason. You know, people having rational deliberations based on on reason and shared facts and this is a movement that doesn't believe frankly in shared facts remember mike johnson said if you want to know my position on anything go read the bible like that's sectarian and it's his reading of the bible is highly sectarian it's not the same view of the bible as uh many of the liberal and moderate theologians and scholars and clergy, uh, Christian clergy, that say that, you know, religious nationalism is a heresy itself and is antithetical to the gospel. So, yeah. Everywhere on earth, whenever man, and it is always man, says... I singularly can distill and interpret the word of God and I will apply it to control you. Those are the most evil places on earth and millions die every time without exception and without question, 100%. And that is, a reality of this moment that we don't that we don't talk enough that we don't talk enough about um 
I wanted to ask you one last thing. So along with these things, fascist movement, Claremont Institute, religious nationalism, they are supported on a foundation of tremendous intellectual corruption that always uh, is attached to a tremendous amount of actual corruption, right? Which we which we see. And when you look at democracies, when you when you look at an environment, I love going to British Columbia every summer. It's a pristine natural environment, right? There's so much life everywhere. You just you intuitively know it's healthy. In a democracy, you can intuit its health too by looking around, right? Just like in the natural world, if there's no birds, right? If there's no animals, if there's no plants, right? There's something that's been poisoned. And so in a democratic society, when it gets wobbly, right, explosion of anti-Semitism, right, is going, is going to be a marker of that. An inability to tell the truth is going to be a marker of that. A, a billion-dollar industry that makes money from algorithms that divide as opposed to philosophies that unite is going gonna, is gonna to be, in this age, a, a symptom of that. You are correct about the line holding. And people are different, right? I I am um, you know, by ethnicity, there's a there's a term called black Irish. And 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 my Irish descendants were black Irish. They were they were these were not optimistic people, apparently, right? So the so the inherent kind of pessimism. Right, like has carried it forward. I and I think it's elemental, you know, in part to foundationally to my small C conservatism, right? Which is which is really foundationally not built on campaign ads, but on a on a philosophy of human nature. I mean, skepticism, right? I was talking to my friend James Carville last week, he goes. I'm 79 years old. He goes, each year my expectations of people go down, right? So now I'm never disappointed, right? And and you're kind of you're kind of laughing, right? That's a that was the kind of the conservatism of sensibility, right? A pessimism about human nature, right? Ronald Reagan was such an effective politician at some level, in that he was able to blend a sunny optimism dispositionally against a political philosophy that's kind of the more restrained one with regard to to human nature, human human thought. When you look at all of this right now, um, I see Joe Biden losing to Donald Trump in, in the polls. I view the Trump choice as distinct as some of the other lesser candidates who are losing on issues. You know, that's a personality election. But but where are you on that one to ten? Oh shit! Right, I had to get out of the country. Right, like let's call that zero. Right to to ten, we're happy days are here again. Right, I, I 
I'm not at a five. I'm not, I'm not at a middle point, right? I'm, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply concerned, right? And, and I view this as part of an ongoing event that's seven years in the making, that's worsening under the philosophy of like the Titanic, which is the, the time between the Titanic hitting the iceberg and going to the bottom of the ocean is about three hours. It's the last 30 minutes where all the action takes place, right? Where all the all the chaos happens. When Jack and, and Rose are hanging off, right? The top of the ship, right? When it's inverted in the sig. Because before that, at the moment of the hit, when the fate was sealed, there was very little stirring about. But the consequences always catch up which again is just my view of human nature. So what do you think as someone who studies this, writes about this, reads about it, has a certain level of detachment as an observer of it and a long time observer of it who can watch the totality of the journey over time, its rise. Where's this all going? I'll give you the last word on that. Uh, I don't make predictions. I have been in a panic since 2009 when I started, when I recognized that the religious right was taking over the courts. They had a really coherent, incredibly well-funded, incredibly strategic plan for how they were going to destroy many of the principles upon which our democracy depends. And I started writing about this uh, phenomena. I published my first book on the topic in 2012, my second in 2020. I'm publishing my third in 2025. So, um, you know, I have been in a panic since then, but I think that the reason why I wrote these books is to offer a roadmap for Listen, as as one of the sort of religious right uh, ladies who was, um, you know, very, you know, had a leadership position is trying to take over, uh, you know, public education, tank it, you know, and get have all the religious schools funded with public money. She said, look, someone's values in the end are going to dominate, you know, and, and I I wrote these books to show how they've been able to notch these successes. And I think that um, there are frankly more Americans who reject these types of domination and conquest politics, um, the destruction of our democracy, um, than those who support that. And I just think if, if we, those of us who treasure our democracy, treasure the institutions of value that have served us uh, for for such a long time, if we can just get our act together, and and become activated, then there is hope, and and the hope is also just in the struggle itself, in taking action to try to preserve our democracy, and um, so that's where I'm, that's where I'm leaving it. Well, I I would say that's a 
that's a perfect place to that's a perfect place to end it and it really frames the great question at hand because you are indisputably right about the most important thing which is a majority of us and by us i mean americans of all races creeds and religions do not want any of this the question is, is there a majority of extremists combined with the indifferent that can exceed and create a plurality that could elect the proper amalgamation of dysfunctional toxic cynical and extremist people where it all goes down and the answer to that question is not a theoretical one the answer to that question is yes that could happen but it will not be on the basis of a loss on the concepts we're talking about it will be a coalition between the indifferent and extremists regarding the most important idea in all of human history, which are the animating ideas of the United States of America, that after all these many years have come to be understood as applying to all of us, regardless of our gender, our racial identity, heritage, creed, or any other consideration that we are all as Americans created equally, endowed by a creator who is above our comprehension and beyond the realm of the state to tell us anything about, equally endowed with rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a profound achievement uh, worth defending, and it's been great to be able to spend time with Catherine Stewart, the investigative journalist and author uh, who is writing her third book, encourage you to get all of them to help make you smarter about this dangerous moment in the life of the Republic. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you.